Greetings, fellow Who Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. Today, we are talking about the novelization of The Android Invasion by Terrence Dix. I am joined this week by Ross Aitken from the podcast's Gallifrey's Most Wanted. Gallifrey's Most Wanted presents the Runcible Report and Stop, Let's Team Up, the first two of which are excellent Doctor Who podcasts, which have been a big influence on the style of conversation that I have each week. I am a little bit of a podcasting magpie. Eagle Ear viewers will note that I often quote consciously or otherwise from several other podcasts in my queue. I really enjoy the way that Ross has conversations with his guests each week, and I have sort of adopted that format, so thank you, Ross, and we'll hear from him in a little bit. This is the second straight week where we are talking about the novelization of a Terry Nation story as adapted by Terrence Dix. What's funny is that I also did an interview this week for an episode coming out several weeks, if not months from now, about a different Terry Nation story adapted by a non-Terrence Dix author. Most of you who have heard this show before and know who my returning guests are will probably figure out who it is and which book I'm talking about, and there will be a clue a little bit later. But I have now interviewed guests, and I've recorded episodes for three Terry Nation books in the last two weeks, so I am pretty much all nationed out tell you a couple of stories. First, a leftover story from last week's episode that I did not get to put in. I've mentioned this story before back in my episode about Planet of the Daleks. Speaking of Terry Nation stories, that's another one. I had talked about Planet of the Daleks with Conrad back in episode 26. During that episode, I had mentioned to Conrad that on my college freshman dorm room wall in the fall of 1991, I actually had a still photo up from Death to the Daleks. Now, when you are a college freshman, or at least when you were a college freshman in 1991, there would often be sales on campus of the sorts of memorabilia that college kids might like to put on the walls of their dorm rooms. And in my particular dorm, uh, you know, you had two roommates, so you had two people in a room, and the walls on each side of the room facing each other were lined in corkboard, so you could pretty much fill every inch of the wall with whatever you wanted, posters, uh, photographs, what have you, with, of course, all the thumbtacks in the world. So I had a very large Star Trek poster and I had a few other posters that I had acquired. And on this particular on-campus sale, they were selling all sorts of, I guess, 8.5 by 11 glossy photos in color and black and white. So I bought a color photo of the Battle of the Motara Nebula from Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, one of my favorite movies of all time, and not just one of my favorite Star Trek movies. I also bought a still black-and-white photo from Forbidden Planet, a movie that I had grown up with and which I've talked about on the podcast before. At the time, I hadn't quite outgrown Doctor Who, but I did have the feeling that announcing myself as a Doctor Who fan on campus was not going to mark me out as somebody who was into the hippest and most popular things. So, of course, I hid behind 
Star Trek instead, which didn't exactly do what I think it was going to do. But when I happened to be at this on-campus sale, I saw a single 8.5 by 11 glossy photo of Death to the Daleks, and it was the third Doctor, John Pertwee, and John Abeneri, and half of a Dalek in frame surrounded by papier-mâché boulders. So I bought it, and I hung it up on the dorm room wall, directly under a much larger poster of uh, Star Trek Spectre of the Gun, which I had inherited from my Star Trek fanzine-collecting Aunt Estelle. And this was a conversation piece. People were trying to figure out what that photograph was of, and I would always explain about Doctor Who, and I would usually be met with blank stares. At the same time, I also bought a glossy color photograph of Winona Ryder, who had been my celebrity crush back in high school. Now, this was not a pinup. This was a tasteful photo. She was wearing a long sleeve sweater and jeans and was leaning up against a wall, smiling at the camera bathed in sunlight. And I had this photo on my dorm room wall for the whole year as well. And that stayed with me for most of college, I think. And also made me probably the only person in history who had photographs of both Winona Ryder and John Abeneri on the wall on display at the exact same time. Now, I bring this up because my own daughter, who's now a brand newly minted teen, is going through her own Winona Ryder phase. She, of course, like most kids of her generation, is heavily into Stranger Things, and she has already seen Beetlejuice, and she has just discovered Heathers which I had watched pretty much when it came out, because I was in high school when that definitive high school movie came out. And that was, of course, deep into my Winona Ryder phase. Now, of course, Heathers is really not a movie that any father should be watching with their daughter. Completely inappropriate. But her generation is heavily into it via the Broadway, I should say the off-Broadway show, and the West End musical. Uh, which she had already evidently memorized the soundtrack to before she had even seen the movie with me. So, of course, now anytime I go off on one of these podcast runs where I am telling a story that goes on too long, like this one, I now have uh, my kid yelling at me, Shut up, Heather! So, yeah, that's pretty much a snapshot into my life. Now the book of the week is The Android Invasion, Now, my story on this is this was purchased for me by my grandmother, my mother's mother, who lived in Brooklyn literally her entire life. And she was probably the only adult in my orbit who encouraged my Doctor Who obsession when I was 11, 12 years old. At one point, she actually knitted me a Tom Baker scarf, which she came up with from scratch, which, thinking about it, is awfully cool, although my mother would never allow me to wear it, so... I ended up having a Tom Baker scarf that I wasn't allowed to wear. So Grandma eventually unraveled it back into its constituent balls of yarn and presumably repurposed it for some other uh, grandchild in the form of a sweater or something perhaps a little more appropriate than a 17-foot-long scarf. So this book, The Android Invasion, was purchased for me at a used bookshop on King's Highway, which runs through the Flatbush and Midwood neighborhoods of Brooklyn. I say that from memory. I have been living in Brooklyn for the past 15 years and have not been back on King's Highway once. So this was a book that was in a pile of sci-fi books, and the book was already four or five years old at the time that I got it. This is the 1980 edition. I would have purchased it at the beginning of 1985. And the bookseller had written the word new 
in pencil on the upper right-hand corner of the first page. Now, I'm not sure how a new book gets into a used bookshop, especially five years after the fact. Maybe the book was sitting there for all five years. I don't know. Or maybe he meant that it was in a new-ish condition. I added to that by writing the story code for J under new. And this is one of the books where I had the cast lists on the inside cover. So I have the cast lists for parts one and two on the inside front cover, and the cast lists for parts three and four on the inside back cover. I misspelled Stigrin, spelling it S-T-Y-G-R-R-O-N, in my very comically oversized and not exactly legible 11-year-old handwriting. What I love about the Pinnacle books is that they have ads at the back for other sci-fi series. So there are four pages worth of ads at the back of this book. You have an ad for the first nine of their Doctor Who titles. They ended up with ten eventually. You have an ad for the first 30 books in the Richard Blade series, which I believe is a pastiche of James Bond. You have a sale page for the first eight books in the Solar Ponds series, which is the Sherlock Holmes sci-fi pastiche. And then you have the first 11 books in the Horatio Hornblower saga. That's a very interesting and eclectic mix of titles. This also has the Harlan Ellison introduction, um, which takes up, I believe, six pages. I am planning on doing a much longer episode dedicated to the Harlan Ellison introduction. I am chasing down some information on that, and that will hopefully come out at a later date. A little bit later on in the program, Ross and I will talk about our Pinnacle books, and I'll talk a little bit more about how I I came to acquire the Android Invasion. I should give a little bit of a content warning before I drop the interview with Ross and myself. It is not really a secret to say that this is not my favorite episode of Doctor Who, and it is not Ross's favorite episode of Doctor Who either. We will together be harshing on various elements of the story during our conversation, and then at the end of the episode, when I read out my analysis of the book, I will also be harshing, perhaps excessively so, on elements of the story as well. Now, I do this in a spirit of fun and love for all of Doctor Who. Even if I dislike Android Invasion, it is not a story that I am ever done with. I will doubtless watch the episodes again, and I will doubtless read the book again at some point in the course of my fandom. When people make a Doctor Who episode, they do not set out to intentionally write or direct or cast or act a bad episode. These things just happen. I do want to point out a couple of things in defense of the Android Invasion first. I am going to drop in right here an excerpt, an outtake, if you will, from an interview that I did with Philip Hinchcliffe about a different novelization. If you've been listening carefully, you can probably guess which one. But here's Philip for a couple of minutes talking about how the Android Invasion came to be and giving a gentle critique on some aspects of the story. Again, nobody involved in the making of the Android Invasion set out to create a story that was going to be in the lower half of most fans' rankings. This was a story made in good faith, 
and I want to give equal time to people on the production side who obviously have a chance to defend the story as much as I'm going to spend most of the next 90 minutes perhaps picking it apart. Bob Holmes said, you know, should we do another Terry Nation? And uh, I think I have a memory of um, saying, well, yeah, but not, not a Dalek story. Uh, and I think I might have said, uh, we will do some Earthbound stories. Um, you know, can we do something that's a bit sci-fi? And, um, and so I think he probably went away. I didn't have personally a sort of conversation with Terry myself, although I, I, I had met him, but I, I, didn't invo I wasn't involved in the actual script editing meetings. Um, but I, 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 I think we said that to him and he said, I know I'm going to do an Android story. Um, which I, which really excited me. And I think all the Android aspects of the story that he eventually wrote were terrific. You know, uh, I think we fell down on realizing the, um, you know, the, the aliens, um, but, but all the Android aspects of that story worked really, really well. Um, so I think that was it. Yes, I'm up for one more Terry Nation story, but can it be something, you know, sci-fi kind of thing? Uh, and so that's how the second one came about, I think. The problem with, um, you know, actors in rubber masks is that um, in order to be sort of heard, they all seem to adopt, uh, unless their voice is treated like the Daleks, they all seem to... Um, uh, adopt a sort of booming Shakespearean delivery <laughs> because they can't be heard with these rubber masks. Um, I'm glad that the uh, the story works. Um, but that, that that that's there the, and also the what we did none of us spotted was that if they've got thick fingers like that, how can they be a high tech sort of race of people you know it it which it wasn't thought through properly by on the design side if you know what i mean and of course my thanks to philip hinchcliffe for taking the time to talk to me and share such candid stories in such detail you will hear the full entirety of that interview at a later date for a forthcoming episode of doctor who literature and again you can probably guess which book that is I also want to point out that even though Android Invasion is not my favorite story from the Hinchcliffe era, it is a Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen story. The two of them cannot help but make magic, even if the script around them is perhaps not the most conducive in terms of dialogue. As I was looking for audio excerpts to put into my analysis of the book at the end of this episode, I picked a couple of cheesier dialogue clips that fit my theme but again to give equal time here is some byplay between tom and liz that is just delightful and in the interest of fairness and equal time i am going to play it and after that with ross aitken let's get to it come on wake up doctor come on doctor, please come on wake up i am awake i think Once upon a time, there were three sisters, and they lived in the bottom of a treacle well. Their names are Olga, Masha, and Irena. Are you listening, Tilly? I'm Sarah. Sarah! 
I feel disorientated. This is the disorientation center. That makes sense. Come on, the Okay, Ross, this is your third time back on Doctor Who Literature. It's been a minute. You were here for Curse of Peladon, and you were here as well for The Tenth Planet. And now we are back to discover a book that is quite possibly based on a story that is not as good as the first two. So we're going to have some fun. <laughs> down today. Glad you, I'm really glad you said that. <laughs> this is not, be honest, this is not one of my favorite Doctor Who stories on TV, let alone um, in book form. So, but of course, um, as this is Doctor Who literature, we have to contractually spend several minutes talking about everything except for Android Invasion. So uh -huh. you have three podcasts of your own going on. So bring us up to date. Well, what's going on with Gallifrey's Most Wanted and Runcible Report and stop. Let's team up. All right. Well, Gallifrey's Most Wanted uh, is going strong. Runcible is on a little hiatus. Jeff, Jeff is taking a break and that's fine. It's good. I'm hoping to get him back on. We're going to do um, – I've been doing special comic book ones and doctor ones um, for that to fill the gap. Vic and me, um, uh, today when I'm done edit, done with this, I'm going to finish editing our our take on uh, Terminus, Ooh. which um, which is not probably one of our more positive reviews of a show. <laughs> and, <laughs> I can only uh, and, and we're recording um, Apocalypse Element, a big finished story with Colin Baker – um, Maggie Stubbs and Lala Ward, which I really like. It's like the 11th big finish, and it's a Dalek story. So, uh, But I've been, yeah, uh, just to fill in the gap for Runcible Report, I've been doing comic shop uh, stuff with Mark McManus. Um, I've We've picked the next Doctor. I'm covering doc, the second Doctor. I've got a couple people set up for that one, but we're going to wait. I'm trying to get, you know, get a... Get everybody set up and do it and give time people time to kind of do a – not a complete rewatch of Patrick Troughton, but to kind of hit some key stories before we talk about it. Especially – and I'm glad that's one that won the poll because with all the animation, you could literally now almost watch all of them. Have you seen Abominable Snowman yet? Yeah, I, yeah yes, I did because I buy the steel books on those because they're one they're pretty on the shelf and I'm impatient as hell. Um. And I can, you know, if you bought a, a multi-region Blu-ray player and a regular Blu-ray player, the, the difference in price is nothing. They, they're the same price nowadays. So I have, um, I always buy a multi-regional one. So it's nice so I can get stuff. And I really liked it. I thought it was pretty. The, the background stuff they do is so stunning. You know what I mean? The anime, the moving animation is not like Disney quality. It's not going to be because these things took two years to do in a normal you know disney or a, you know a theatrical animated movie takes like five or six years to do there takes a long it's a long process so but i yeah, loved it it made the story because you know i vic talks about it constantly about the damn beeping of a ball and it is <laughs> and she's not wrong that is the hardest reconstruction to get through because the, the when i was getting like the recons and then 90s on VHS, they were a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and they, it, it was impossible. And I really never kind of got what the story was for it until I heard, you know, the BBC uh, CD with Fraser Hines doing the narration, and it's still that damn noise, beep beep beep, and you can't, you know, it's it's, but it worked. It was nice to see it. Uh, it was nice that they actually changed how the actors look, kind of, right. you know. It's like I, you know, no, I'm one of those people is like. Some of you know some of the, like the big I think it's the big finished produced ones like Macro they kind of went we're not 
we're not going to go by camp uh, exact duplicate because the sets were kind of crappy and they're claustrophobic, you know, and I watch. And so some of them times they, they expand it and I like it and I get that. And I know it's not for everybody, but I like it because it's like, give the artists something to do. It's, you know, they're, they're, they're artists who are doing this. It's it's crazy. They want to do the best job. So they look great. I mean, it just looks, and I think the best thing I've seen in the, in the, these last three or four was, how they take how they captured the backgrounds made them very three-dimensional because um the, the inside the monastery the buddha statue is beautifully rendered but there is a thing that the people moving aren't as finely detailed as the people behind, as the settings hmm. but that's just you know because the problem i think they had is they don't want to do more than one character model per, per episode and there's something they talk about. They, you know, I don't. They, you know, the, they don't want characters to do costume changes. <laughs> it's right. basically because then you have to have two computer. Gen- you know, it's a lot of work. But it was nice. It was good. It's, and the story was easier to understand. It was more enjoy. You know, because I could see it moving, and it was just it, it made more sense. Because some of those, you know, I, I, you know, I think sometimes that the season of the monster is not as it's you know sometimes the monster of the week it's it's the same story with a different monster you know the base under siege is so part of that thing but now that if I was to go back and rewatch Trouton I think it wouldn't bug me as much as it did when I was having to dip in and out of reconstructions and audios and books and you know Vic does the books on the missing ones. You know, she doesn't, she can't do the reconstructions the second time. And I'm not asking her to, because it's, it's rough. I mean, I'm going, the ones on daily motion are better. You know, I've done that for reconstructions because, you know, Luce Cannon has done them again and again, fix them. Um, so, you know, it, it was nice. I like it. I'm glad they did it. I wish they had finished, but, eh, you know, there's not much left. Wheel, a couple episodes of Wheel of Space, a couple of the, you know. I mean, God, but I would love to have seen him try to do Dalek Master Plan. Yeah, there's a lot of season three that has not been restored yet. And yeah. I am a much bigger fan of season three. I've been angling for someone to get me on for a podcast just to discuss season three. Season three in production terms, not in broadcast terms. So that goes from Myth Makers up through the smugglers because the show was falling apart behind the scenes. They had two producers for the season. They had seven companions. In- yeah. It's not, and some stuff was under verity. The first two, the first one is what we call season three was really part of the production block of season one, but they just never stopped. Remember, didn't they? Isn't that kind of what it was is they just never stopped producing it. They were just always working. Yeah. So the first season, the first production season was unearthly child, which they made twice. And then that goes up through Dalek Invasion of Earth. So production season two starts with the rescue and goes up through Mission to the Unknown, which was the last one that had Verity Lambert's name on it. Yeah. Then they did. So the incoming team decided to fire Maureen O'Brien without telling her. Uh. So she goes on her four week vacation in between production season two, production season three. She comes back, gets home. She dusts off her scripts for the Myth Makers. She gets to the last page. Wait a minute. Nobody told me I was being written out. I would have been looking for work during those four weeks rather than going on vacation if somebody had just told me. Yeah. Uh, is that Ennis Lloyd or John Wiles? That was John Wiles. Yeah, he said they're both, they're both dicks. 
<laughs> Absolutely. The next thing Wiles tries to do is fire William Hartnell, and of course he doesn't get permission, so he quits. Then they bring in Ennis Lloyd, and that season ends with the smugglers. Then at the end of the smugglers, somebody puts a curse on the doctor and says, you're going to be dead in 24 hours. Then they go on vacation. Hartnell re- has already retired. Comes back for season four, which starts off with Ten Planet. He does one story, which in story terms is his character dying 24 hours after the smugglers ends. And then, of course, off we go with Patrick Troughton. So if you just look at the run of season three stories from Mythmakers through the Smugglers, which was the third production block, it's incredibly fascinating. So I like it. It's a little choppy for me, some of the stories, but I think it's because I can't like Mythmakers. I finally kind of like um, I listened to it before uh, All of Time and Space covered it. And I, and I had an audible credit, so I got the um, that, and I listened to it, and and I listened to it very closely instead of just I didn't listen to it while I was walk, you know, no outside. When I was listening, all I was doing was listening to it, and I got it, and I liked the comedy. I love the historicals; they're some of my favorites of the Hartnell era, especially because you know they realize that you know the history's not so our history's not so good, so we're going to make them a little light. Because I think the I think the Romans is one of the best historicals, but it's a comedy, and they proved that they could do comedy, and he's good at it. And I, you know, I reevaluated the Gunfighters last time I watched it, and it's a comedy. It's meant to be light until it gets really dark at the end. Um, but yeah, I love that ear. I mean, and I loved Mythmakers this last time, but I would love that's one that would be a beautiful reconstruction. Mm. You know, um, because I thought the. The reconstruction for Galaxy 4, or the animated one, was unique, but I thought it suited it, you know? I thought, you know, it's like the Rels are and the – because I went, how much are they taking license with the the Rels, Rels, spaceship? And then I went, oh, you have to because that's just some shower curtains on some pipe, PVC (laughs) pipe. It's really bad. It's a bad set. The 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 Drobins have a nice set, but the Rills is just basically some shower curtains on some cheap PPC. <laughs> so yeah, I did the Trap One. I I moderated the Trap One panel on Galaxy Four, and I'll tell you, I normally am a traditionalist, so mm-hmm. a lot of the Troughton era animations came out when I was doing the Troughton pilgrimage at the beginning of 2021. And I deliberately watched them. I'm talking about Macro Terror, Fury from the Deep. Deliberately watched those animations only in black and white because I was doing the pilgrimage in part to just experience the visual evolution of the show. And I didn't want to lose that black and white, that black and white yeah. Lime Grove Studio D vibe. With Galaxy Four, with the pilgrimage at that point out of the classic series, I had no qualms about watching the color. And it's Gary Russell is in charge. He explains on the commentary why he picked the colors that he did. Those are the colors that would have been prevalent in the media in 1965. And it's nothing to do with the way that Derek Martinez would have directed the story. They go in a very different visual direction. I would love to see a reconstruction of how Derek Martinez directed that story because what he did sounds fascinating. And we know from the surviving episode three that he did a a titan's job on what's not maybe the best script it's really it's a rough script that it get there are good parts to it but overall it's really choppy but the animation is absolutely gorgeous so i'm looking forward to abominable snowmen arriving here i'll also tell you and i got into this a couple of weeks ago when conrad was on 
there was a lot of stuff in the classic series that during my pilgrimage, I went from dislike to like, because when you're watching it in sequence, it's a different vibe than just watching it in jukebox format. Abominable Snowman is one of the few stories where I went from like to dislike, just because the way Tibetan culture was portrayed was so patronizing. And then, of course, you have these white face, these white actors in yellow face putting on varying degrees of, uh, of bad accents. So it was almost painful watching it. Yeah, when me and Vic covered it, I was really like, "These are Tibetan monks, and they're some aggro guys. Man, they got some aggro. They got some anger management issues, you know." Uh, but I will say, watching the animation, I think if when you get it, you'll enjoy it because they are drug. They do not look like the actors at all. You know, they don't even. You know, they they're very different haircuts. Everything they design, they basically design Tibetan characters. You know, like the the. The warrior monk, whatever that was, that character, he is – he's thinner. He's not as thick. He's not this big, beefy guy. Right. Um, you know. Uh, yeah. Tibetan monks in the 1930s were not pumping iron. Yeah. That guy looked – that guy hadn't met a blood pudding he didn't like. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's it was really pretty. It's the same – I think it's the same people. It's, I think it's Gary, it's Gary Russell. It's the last BBC one. Yes. I mean the last big finish one. You know, and there's some more. I mean, season two, thank God it's going to come out. I'm so excited that that is going to come out in the Blu-ray set. And the only thing that's missing from that is the two episodes of The Crusade, um, which is, you know, has some of that same thing. You've got Bernard K. and Brownface. But Mm -hmm. I I don't know what I was listening to, but someone was going to get – but – those characters aren't portrayed, you know, Saladin's portrayed in a very positive light. Yes. Like, he's just the leader, and he is not, this is the, you know, if anybody's the problem, it's Richard. Which is historically accurate. Yeah, Richard's the invading force. And he was a bit of a jackass. And Saladin was just like, hey, stop coming in our country and telling us what to do. We are, you know, our civilization's a little older than yours, and you guys are barbarians. You know, it's, it's, you know, the Western culture, we try to think us as, you know, us in the 10th century, we were the advanced. It's like, no, you know, math comes from Islam. The Arabic algebra, like, algebra is an Arabic yeah, word. Yes, it's, yeah, you know, they they knew the world was round. They weren't stupid. They could look in the stars and figure out this. They knew this earth moved around the sun. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm looking forward to season two. I, and I think they'll do season three. I guess I don't know what they'll do for Myth Makers and some of that, um, and I I wouldn't be surprised if season is almost all of season four five been animated. Season five is mostly animated now. That'll be you know I may not get, I don't know if I'll get that box set because I got the the Steel Books and the American one edition just to make sure I had a playable copy. So. But I do – I'm enjoying the Blu-ray sets, you know, a great deal. Uh, Chris Chapman and Toby Haddock and uh, the other people that, uh, that do all the documentaries and stuff, that's well worth the price of admission for those things. I cannot praise those guys enough. I think you actually had Toby Haddock on your show, didn't you? Yeah, we, yeah, we did an episode about Quatermass because he, like I am, a Quatermass fan. Now you've been and, crushing it with your guest. You had Simon Gurrier on as well. Really fast. Yeah, I need. To, I really want to get him back on and talk about some of his, one of his audio books. But it's just, 
I just said, you know, I need to reach out because I got to do, I haven't done a big finished one in a while. And it just, I like to save those for Jeff. Right. Because me and him are, you know, he, he devouring some of them recently. I'm a little, I'm way behind right now. The comic podcast keeps me very busy reading and I've been, I'm guesting on a couple other podcasts for that. Um, uh, I'm guesting on one called a world on fire, which is about golden age DC characters. And they're doing some stuff. Uh, that I like, and we have me and the guy Billy D are of the same mindset when it comes to these older characters. And I'll just plug myself. I did two of your special episodes of GMW. I was on your fourth Doctor special, and I was on your third Doctor special. The latter of which it was hard to constrain my enthusiasm for the Pertwee era. And I'm angling to be on your eventual first Doctor special, but that one is going to be that one. I'm really kind of holding the back part because I definitely want Jeff on it. You know, want him ready to do it because he is the heart. He that's Jody and Hartnell are his favorite Doctors now. And I'm like, I want that kind of, uh, I like his take on the first doctor a great deal because I'm more, the more I watched the first doctor and during the pandemic, I kind of did a deep dive in it. And he, it, it's, it's so unique in the era because it is the first and it is so different than everything that really comes. They don't, I mean, you don't see a traditional doctor, what we consider a traditional doctor who story really until the war machines. Mm-hmm. Everything else is – there's nothing like it um, and the experimentation. I will uh, – um, Web Planet is a great – is a masterpiece. is a hill I will die on because I think it is. I think it, people like – but it's so – no, that's – for 1966, that's pretty good, man. For the technology they had, that's – I think it's amazing. You know, I know when they fail, you know, I th- and I don't think that's a fail. I had tried – you start a Twitter thread on this a while back. For my money, the Hartnell era is still the best era of the show in terms of storytelling because you literally never know what you're going to get. Every other producer was aware of their budget limitations. Every other producer decided to focus in on one lane of storytelling. However, the Hartnell era didn't realize that they just couldn't afford to do what they were doing, so they would tell any story in any order, so you literally never know what's going to happen. And what's interesting is I'm now in my own pilgrimage. I am now at the end of series 11. So I've just fin- I'm just about to finish tonight, the last episode of Jody's first season. And while I dislike the writing and the themes of a lot of those stories, what impresses me is that, number one, Jody's acting is so much better than anybody is giving her credit for. Watching her back a second time, she is probably one of the best performers you've ever had taking on the role and that's high praise because you've had some incredible actors in there, oh yeah especially coming after capaldi but what she's doing is just completely criminally underrated the other thing is even though i don't like the individual stories the variety of storytelling is heart and ls because you have three historicals out of the first eight the other series weren't doing that then you never know if you're going to wind up on a spaceship in the future or in a in norway or or, or what have you so Jimnall is consciously going back and doing the Hartnell era grab bag storytelling rather than Moffat, all stories are going to be about this. RTD, all stories are going to be about this. Yeah, and that's why I like I'm, – I'm, I like Chibnall's writing. I, I, and I, as a Moffat fan, am glad to see someone who isn't as – and Davies too. They're, they're writers who like to hear their words said out loud. 
They had the same kind of arrogance that Sorkin, uh, Tarantino, uh, Whedon, you know what I mean? They're of that generation of writers. And it's all about the rhythm and the poetry and whatever you want to call it. The you know, And I like all those guys. I'm a big Sorkin fan. I mean, I think I like watching actors play with those words, even if it's a story I don't like or the script's actually not that good as a whole. But I like I like that Chimnall t- changed the tact and said I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell Doctor Who stories in a very and it is the closest of modern Who to original Who. That it is, they cut the soap opera way way down because there's a lot of soap opera in Davies and Moffat's writing. Oh, definitely for sure. And that and I understand why you have soap opera. You want to do character pieces, but I think. Um, I think he wanted to see historicals back, and I've and he like me, I guess Chibnall like me is like, why did you stop? Why did we stop doing them? You can put something science fiction like in Pujab. I love the uh, that story is about the uh, the partition. They just put a little science fiction in the side, you know. And I and I like that kind of structure. Um, the Rosa had the little science fiction. I think that's I love Rosa, but the science fiction is a little tacked on. You know, you don't have to. I don't see why you actually have to do. I'd like to see Davies try it when he comes back and just do a historical. They land in a historical setting and have an adventure in that time period. I mean, that's all uh, the Highlanders is. It's not about the battle. It's about what happened after the battle. Yeah, the battle's only the first few minutes of part one. Then they move to Inverness and they're telling a different story about. Yeah, smugglers. the smugglers is like that. You know, it's a story about the pi- the year of the pirates and the smugglers on the Cornish coast and they just get wrapped up in what could have been any adventure and i think you should it's a time travel show do some time travel yeah and davies was consciously not doing that in his first series when they were never left planet earth at all but well he did but he also did he did set on earth set in future set in past Right, but there were there were no al- there were no alien planets and i think he 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 now has the ability i think to tell a more alien planet story Oh, and I think having Bad Wolf, because I've watched some of my Dark Materials and some other stuff they produced, it will be a beautifully made show. You know, it's they, they I think the BBC, if they were going to pick an outside vendor, picking the people that brought the show back in 20, 20, 2005, you know, because Trana and Gardner, and I don't know the young, I don't know the woman who's their third partner in Bad Wolf. Uh, she was not part of, you know, the people, she was, I think she's from LA. I think she's an American. Mm. when they moved to because Tranter and Gardner left BBC to go to LA to form that company. So I think we're, I think we're in for a treat. I mean, they got Doogie Howser in it. They, they're, you know, right. they're spending some money. That ain't a cheap get. So I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to the centenary. You know, I just wish they'd announce a date. <laughs> uh, oh, they've, they've announced the title, Power of the Doctor. They still have not given us it. Theoretically, it's only a month away, so maybe they'll want to publicize this thing. Well, I th- the one thing I like about the Chibnall era is I was surprised by things. Stuff didn't get spoiled. You know, There's a difference between announcing the date the episode is going to air and announcing yeah. who these surprise hidden guest stars are. They could at least yeah, I mean, he's, just a, he's way more paranoid than the rest. You know, and I, I think in some ways it's good. He doesn't do trailers. You can do a trailer and not show anything. Yeah. You know, and I thought the trailer at the end of um, uh, Legends of the Sea Devils was good. You it just te- wet your whistle. It's like, well, wait a minute. Ace is back. 
Tegan's back. All right. Here, guys, talk for the next four months. That's all we're going to show you. You and I had done the Trap 1 breakdown of the Flux trailer, which when you go back in retrospect, the Flux trailer showed a lot of images but gave nothing away about what the Flux was going to be about. Oh, so God, no. It was that. just little cool images from all the episodes. Oh, we got Santarans. Oh, we've got this. Oh, we've got that. Wait a minute. How is that connected? So, and, you know, and I enjoyed Flux. It's, a, it's the only time I've ever actually seen a serialized Doctor Who <laughs> in transmission. I, you know. It was neat. It was neat. I found that very enjoying that there were, you know, that I, I got to see my six. I got to finally see a Doctor Who in the traditional format in a way. Because, you know, we like you said, we earlier we were talking, we want to see, you know, you do rewatches and watching them in order changes it because we were kind of as Americans, especially with anything after Tom Baker's first four or five years. You were getting stuff way out of order. Right. You know, I mean, like I told, I say it. The last doctor I saw was the third doctor. You know, I didn't see Spirit from Space until I had seen at least the first season of Sylvester McCoy. I grew up in that sweet spot because my cable system on Long Island got five different PBS stations. Sorry. A little bit of Aretha Franklin there. It's my uh, make sure if I haven't taken my medication, take it now. I am going to leave that in just to see if I get a copyright claim on those three seconds of respect. You know what? I've gotten some copyright claims on like weird little clips, like 10-second clips. It's like, really? For a while on my stop makes sense, uh, I just did the starburst at the end credits of Colin Baker's era that right. didn't get claimed. <laughs> I was like, Really? You claim the themes. I have to delete them. When I put stuff on YouTube, there's no theme music. Oh, wow. Because they yeah, have, yeah, I only do 20 seconds and they cut it. They claim it. So I just trim it. I do a 10-second clip of the opening titles for the appropriate doctor in each episode of this show. I have not gotten a claim yet on the, on the podcast. And then I do – I've got Dudley Simpson doing the intro and the outro music. have not gotten claims on that either. Trying to be careful with the copyright stuff. Yeah, I do too, and I don't do more than ten or fifteen seconds. And and you know, and me and Vic have a clip after we introduce ourselves, and that never gets tagged. So I mean, there is fair use, but what's fair? I mean, I'm not putting a whole episode up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we've been at this for about half an hour, and we've been doing a very good job of avoiding talking about the android invasion. <laughs> I'm going to do one last tangent. You had talked about Sorkin. The last Sorkin thing that I saw was his rewrite of To Kill a Mockingbird, which was a Broadway show with Jeff Daniels. How was it? I would, I would love to see that. Premiered in late 2018. It was obviously closed for two years because of the pandemic. Reopened. Daniels left. They had to move theaters, and they never reopened in the new theater because of other contractual obligations. So the Broadway show, unfortunately, is over. Now on the West End, and there's a tour going out. I grew up with To Kill a Mockingbird. It's very influential in my life. Mm -hmm. Everybody I know who's a lawyer has says that. <laughs> I, in my case, literally, um, even the Korea, the, the K-drama, Ms. Hammurabi, which is about young judges in Seoul, even that South Korean series where hardly a word of English is spoken in 16 episodes, the main character, the main judge in that serial also is inspired by To Kill a Mockingbird and quotes from it liberally in the first episode. One of the best shows I've ever seen about, about lawyers. 
So I would highly recommend Sorkin's version of To Kill a Mockingbird because Harper Lee's text is very problematic looking at it now. I was reading it to my kid during the pandemic. In that version, Atticus is almost the bad guy in the story, even though he's written as the hero. Sorkin does a complete rewrite, puts things out of chronological order, gives a little more backbone to the black characters, and has Atticus go on an actual journey. In the book, Atticus describes himself as a proud segregationist, and in the Broadway version, he actually has a journey of his own, which is not given to him in the book. If you can see that, there's a tour, again, a touring production in the U.S., and it's on the West End now, I think. Definitely see that. It will be a massive improvement over the book, and hopefully will become the gold standard text going forward. More people need to get out there and see it. I wanted to see it. I watched his um, the movie he directed about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Mm. And people complained that they she wasn't funny. Well, she wasn't funny when she wasn't being funny. <laughs> you know? Uh, there was this thing, you know, she's very, she was a businesswoman who created an empire with her husband, who invented the three camera system. There's a lot of stuff in it that Desi was a smart businessman, an, inc- an incredibly intelligent man, and not just the flunky to her, but she, and she was a bit of a tyrant. And it shows her creating comedy, which is totally different than being funny. You're trying to be funny, but she's, it's her developing a gag. And how she made everybody rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it. And there, you know, she comes off a little her she knows her husband's cheating on her through it. It all takes place in one week where Winchell accuses her of being a communist. It's a and it's it all set in this one seven day period while they were getting ready to record a famous episode and Winchell accused her of being a communist on the radio. Right. And it's great. And um Javier Javier Bardem is amazing at De- as Desi. And, you know, and I knew a bit about Desi because as a Star Trek fan, you know a little bit about Desi and Lucy because that's why Star Trek got made. And more so Desi than Lucy because he ran the business, not her. Although I've seen stories that Lucille Ball was on set for the cage, helping set up and helping sweep out. She was very enthused by it. And also they, their production company basically launched the Twilight Zone, because it was Desi Arnaz who produced and then hosted the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone called The Time Element. Oh, really? I didn't know that. But I can see him doing that to get it going. Yeah, he was he, he was the... I mean, Rod Serling was already a highly established TV writer by that point. Oh, gotcha. It was Desi Arnaz who got him to the next level with Twilight Zone because he produced yeah. that first episode. And he was the on-camera host before Rod Serling. Yeah, well, Serling had already won all these, uh, you know, awards for Requiem of of a heavyweight and and patterns and many others yeah yeah, yeah he'd already been he him and Pais of that group with patty chayefsky and uh, richard matheson 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 yeah matheson you know, right yeah the great the Amer- you know where you know vickers will say she's not a tv person movie and i find that some tv writers are as better than some screenwriters i see more screenwriters being problematic people <laughs> than i do tv writers well, that's not true. Uh, Whedon, who I think was, you know, gener- a generational writer for TV and producer, but he's a terrible human being. Yeah, he was third generation. He was not some plucky young kid who got lucky. He was oh, a no. third generation writer who had uh, a foot in the yeah. door that a lot of us would not be able to get, and he certainly misused that foot. But let's now get to the unpleasant task of talking about the android invasion. I want to talk primarily about the Pinnacle books, but Ross. Before we talk about the Pinnacle books, tell me what you think 
of Android Invasion, the TV serial. It's first episode is amazing. The next three are dreck. Dreck. Yeah. They're boy. It's I. I will beat up. I. Be, I think the writer I beat up most on reviewing Doctor Who I've discovered is Nation. His early '60s Dalek stuff is great. I don't like Keys and Rainus. I think it's it's not a great script. It's a little choppy. I understand that they were trying to push the envelope, so I give it some respect for that. But it's not a great script. And his his uh, two his the two Dalek the, his two Dalek stories in the Pert We era are phoned in. And I don't think Dix fixes them. I think if anything fixes them, it's Dix. Um, but I just don't like it. I think it's it's a weak. Why are the unit guys in it? You know, other than just you you owe them a job, a gig. Um, come on, man! I can see Crossroads eyed ball through with the Met patch. The patch isn't stuck down, man. You should have, you know, it's just hanging there, dude. Just look to your left. Just look to your left. <laughs> uh, but the first episode. It's so promising that the letdown for the next three is just like, really? It's such a huge quality drop. You know, it, and it's padding. It's really just, what is it? He, he write it in a weekend? I need a, you know, I got a car payment. I got, I, I just, it's, I, I'm not as impressed with Later Nation. You know, I think... When he comes back, he's just phoning it in. I mean, and, you know, I think he probably – I would have hate to see what his first draft of Genesis of the Daleks was like because they had to – you know, we know they called him on it. Right. We've already bought this from you twice. You know, fix it. You know, and then he but, – but when he puts his mind to it, he – Genesis is great. You know, and I think uh, Dalek and Dalek Invasion Earth, and I th I really think the best Dalek stories are the 60s ones. He only did half of Dalek's Master Plan, but Dalek's Master Plan is probably the greatest story that nobody has in their top ten lists because so much of it is missing. The Dennis Spooner parts, I think, have a little bit of padding because the bit with the meddling monk and the two parts set in ancient Egypt are a bit of a distraction on your way back to the planet Kemble. Terry Nation did, I think, episodes 1 through 5, 7, and 12, if I, if I got that right. I don't think he did any in the back end. I thought he didn't do, but I uh, could be wrong. I'll, I'll double check on that. Because that was one that they, you know, they... I forget the reason why they expanded it. It was meant to be like a five or six parter. I think the controller of the BBC just really wanted a, a three-month-long Dalek serial to, to please his family. So I think that's what happened. It was not a creative decision. It was a production decision. I don't think it's a bad idea. I think you can tell long stories in a weekly serialized format. So uh, You're right. Dennis Spooner did six and then eight through 12. So Terry Nation did one through five and then seven. Seven and seven's Feast of Stephen, which is definitely just you could take it out and not miss it. Well, it was meant. It was. It was. It was meant to be uh, disposable. They didn't even record it. <laughs> it was the one episode that was not recorded to um, tell us any for overseas sales. But yeah, Spooner did eleven and twelve, which is just absolutely phenomenal storytelling. Oh yeah, and you get so much. I mean, it's there's a lot for Stephen and the first Doctor to do. And I love. I'm a big Stephen Taylor fan. I like. I you know, I like Stephen as a character. He's, uh, and I think early who 
companions are a little bit better. I think the first five of them, first five companions are great. But um, yeah, but Nation isn't all. I, I just, back to Nation. I, he just isn't my favorite, and this has never been. This is like the really in the first three four years of Baker. This is the weak link. It is Absolutely. so subpar, and I don't know. Well, I don't think Holmes did a pass on it because there are places you could I could see him fixing stuff and uh, and maybe the first episode is maybe the setup is where he fixed it I detect his hand in the rewrites of the scenes between the two crawl Stigrin and Shadaki Yeah, I can yeah, I get that. Looking at the no- I'll break this down a little bit later in the second half of the show. In the novelization, which is based on the original scripts, it is mostly Stigrin talking to Chidaki. In the televised version, Chidaki has more of a backbone and gets some of the better lines reassigned to him away from Stigrin. That sounds like Robert Holmes trying to make a double act out of otherwise two actors in funny voices doing exposition behind latex masks. So I suspect Robert Holmes tried his best to make that work. doesn't work at all, but Robert Holmes is actually taking steps to make it better than it was on the printed page, which is based on the original, original script. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, it, you know, I think when me and Vic got to it, we were just like, uh, I don't think we beat up Terminus as bad as we beat up Android Invasion. And we beat up, when we did Keys of Marinus, we that was we were going at with Nation with baseball bats. Because <laughs> we were both like, and I like sixty science fiction, and I was just like, it's you know, and also I think what got me is that was when we covered that one. It was the first time I'd really watched it on a giant TV, and it was like, oh, this is so unforgiving and high def. <laughs> Terminus has a social conscience and a message. Terminus is about the for-profit healthcare system, and you and I, from our day jobs, both know way too much about how damaging that is. Oh, yeah. Me and Meg talk about it, and she also brings up some, because when it came out, it could be an AIDS allegory, but was it? But who knows, you know? But it's just, yeah, it's a rough story. It's it's, it's, full of missed opportunities. It's one of those ones where I said, you know, I thought Sarah Sutton's good, and I think Peter Davison's good in it. I think it's just... Eric, Eric say was that Eric Sayward at that point? That that was Eric. I heard Stephen Gallagher speak at Gallifrey One in February. That was the one that you were almost at, and Gallagher was talking frankly about his experiences under Christopher H. Bidmead, who improved Warriors Gate, versus his experiences under Sayward, who deproved Terminus, deimproved, yeah, well, devolved. The more I watch the Sayward era, the less I'm mad at John Nathan Turner for anything. Yeah. Just John Nathan Turner expected a script editor to fix stuff, which is a good – that's a good – I agree with that. That's not your job as the, the producer. Uh, Jeff posted something on uh, – you know, on someone posted something on Twitter about using different musicians in the, in the future instead of one person, one ha- instead of a house person, blah, blah, blah. And I brought up the thing is if you want to see something and, – and Jeff brought up is don't let the head writer be the producer. And I went – well, there's a model in America I think works is you have three producers. The executive producer is the money man. Right. A producer is the head of the writing room, and then a producer is the head of the director's team. So you have production, you have a production discipline, a writing discipline, a directing discipline, and they work together. And I think I'm a huge supernatural fan, and I think 
uh, Eric Kripke in the first five years uses that system. And then because he had – he was the writer guy and then there was a guy named Bobby Singer who he named a character after as a, as a poke at his friend, um, was a director. And I think you get a better product. I think um, – Battlestar Galacta did a little bit of that. I think right. Whedon uh, did a little bit of that because I think David Fury and Marty Marty Knoxon was a producer. And David Fury was a director. Yes. You know, so I think that's where they came from. They all ended up being writers because they learned, you know, you can have multi cross discipline. And, but I think you need I don't think you need a writer's room. And I think in British television, it's very one person oriented. But I think if you want to. You want to get better quality. It would be bad to have a small – hire four writers for the season and then have one writer in charge of them and then have one person in charge of picking directors and let the directors pick different musicians. Let them cast it. I mean you've got – Andy Pryor is still going to be casting Doctor Who till he's – even after he's dead probably because he <laughs> – But he does a good job. He's, don't get rid of a production – don't get rid of a casting agency if they're doing a good job, you know. And he's really good. We know his name. That's how good of a casting director you are if we know you. It's like um, Christian Slater's mom. If I saw yes. his mom's name on a movie, I knew it was well cast. And that's how he wound up in Star Trek VI because his yeah. mom cast Star Trek VI. So he got the uncredited cameo. And there's a woman called uh, – God, Andrea Rome. Roma? I'm going to get this wrong. But she casts all the Bruce Tim DC comic voice actors. And that's how we get Mark Hamill as the Joker, um, and how we got a guy. Uh, we get Kevin Conroy doing Batman for the last thirty yep. years, and Tim Daly as Superman. I mean, and it, she's an incredibly good. I mean, you know, it's just so. Um, and I think in the old system with the BBC, is the director cast, and I think that's a good thing. The director should be have a say in casting. Yeah, it certainly is how the classic series work. Because you had David Maloney had his repertory of actors. Douglas Get people you know to work with. Yeah, a director likes that. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know you work with the people that understand you, and it speeds up the process, takes all the the the, the uncomfortableness of getting to know each other. Because sometimes I've directed people and I've had actors that I don't do anything with. I have actors I'm very hands on because you know, but you know I like casting. I, I, I thought it was my strong suit. I cast against type. I don't like type. Type is stupid. It's dull. Have the wrong. Have a did. Have the per, the person you least think that would play this part play that part. Mm. Because you just you because it makes them go. Why would you give? I would never get this part. Why have this part? Just shut up. You have the part. Now do it. You're gonna be great. Just do what you think. You know. I'll tell tell you when you're you're doing something that's not working. Doctor Who's best case in point of that is Nicholas Parsons in Curse of Fenric. Gives an incredible, troubled, dramatic turn, and he was a game show host. Yeah, comedian. Was he a comedian before he was a game show host? Because that's a lot of comedians become game show hosts because they know how to work an audience better than an actor. But they're also better actors because you know the stand-up comic is playing a role when they're on stage, and they're by themselves, which is terrifying. So they, that's why I think they make such – Danny Kaye, what a great dramatic actor, but he was a song and dance man. Uh, Jimmy Cagney was a song and dance man. He was a hoofer. Fun fact, Danny Kaye and Isaac Asimov grew up within a few blocks of each other in East New York. 
Isaac Asimov and Danny Kay went to the same, very briefly, went to the same elementary school a few years apart, which is now called the Danny Kay School. There's your okay. fun fact for the day. Bring Danny Kay into the sci-fi conversation. I'm a big Danny Kay fan. I love to see it. Uh, but but I'm, old, I'm old enough to remember when we still had variety shows on TV. My grandmother used to do homework with Sylvia Fine, who later became the future Mrs. Danny Kay. So I've heard family stories about them going back uh, 100 years now. Oh, good God. But let's get back to Android Invasion, unfortunately. Right. So let's talk about the Pinnacle books, because I have this in Pinnacle format. And the same grandmother who was friends with Sylvia Fine is the one who bought me this copy of Android Invasion out of a used bookshop on King's Highway that it does almost certainly... They use bookshop in Brooklyn no longer exists and is now a bank branch. But that's where we the, the, the proprietor of the shop dug Android Invasion out of a pile at the very back. It's one of these old school American paperbacks with the yellow gilted edges, which none of my other target novelizations have. Oh, God, I forgot about that because I had a whole set of the pinnacles. Because that's my brother gave me all of them at once. So is that how you discover the novelizations through the pinnacles? Oh, yeah, yeah, because I didn't know what Target books were until I was a senior in high school and they started selling them in America. And the comic shop that I had worked part time at in high school gave me one of every one that came in as a goodbye present for when I went to college. And I had them in a milk egg crate, a milk crate, one of those square plastic milk crates under my bed in my dorm. And I would carry one around in my book bag. So if I had 20 minutes in between stagecraft or um, acting or movement, I would just sit under a tree or sit in the cloakroom and just read one of these books. Because I read, I reread this one in two days. And if you added all the time it took to read it, it was like hour and a half. Yeah. You know, because that's what it is. But no, he gave them to me and I hadn't. I read some of these before. I may have seen a handful of Dr. E's before he gave me the books. I think I just started watching it, so maybe I'd seen uh, all the first three seasons, maybe the first four seasons of Tom Baker. So for some of them, like the older Doctors, that was the only aspect of them I had in uh, like Colony in Space and whatever they call it. Um, that was my only, yeah, that was my, I, all that was how I knew these Doctors was from those, what, 11 or 12 books? I think Pinnacle did. 10 and they just sold the same 10 over and over again and then different covers and logos yeah and you can get ones the blue logo or the red logo yeah dale santos on the facebook group knows which year has which color logo there was a whole system to it oh good god i bet uh, but they were good and it had that you know and my brother is a huge harlan ellison fan so he liked that the, the introduction was by harlan ellison mm -hmm. so you know that's how I learned about Harlan Ellison. The first time that I ever read anything by Harlan Ellison was this book, because I have the introduction in here. It's in all of them, isn't it? It's the same introduction for every book? Uh, I thought there were some of the earlier Pinnacles didn't have the introduction, but I okay. don't know. For I'm, I'm actually trying to get more information. I, I know somebody who knows somebody with connections to the Ellison estate. We are trying to chase down a little bit of information about when this introduction was written and why. But that'll be hopefully a forthcoming episode of this podcast. Well, that's cool. every 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 pinnacle. I have seven of the ten pinnacles, and all seven of my pinnacles have the Harlan Ellison introduction. And of okay. course, I read it all seven times when I got each of those books for the first time. Very good stuff. 
So did you have those before you saw a Target book? Or? Uh, it all happened within a few months. I discovered Doctor Who November 84, borrowed a friend's novelization in December 84, got my first in January 85, and then I was staying with my grandmother in on Ocean Avenue. It must have been December break. Must have been, must have been February break. From, we had a week off in February. So my parents packed off me and my kid sister to stay with her for the week so they could have some time to themselves. And that's when she took me to King's Highway to this used bookstore and got, got me the Android Invasion. So it would have been one of my first 10 targets, would have been in the spring of 85. And then I saw the episode on TV because it cycled through my main PBS station probably in April. So I read some targets before I got my first Pinnacle, but it all happened within 90 days. So the Pinnacle has a very outsized influence on my fandom because it was one of the bits of magic that I got in the first 90 days that made me such a hardcore fan so so young. Yeah, and I liked him because, I mean, you know, I was more voracious reader back then, and, you know, I read them all real quickly, and I kept them even after I got – I don't even think I ever had a complete collection of Target novels. I think I still got some holes. Like I never had the Smugglers, and I got a hardcover copy of it, it during the pandemic. Um, I did um, – I sold a couple when I got other versions. Like I saw, I found a set of the three hardbacks of uh, the reissues they did of the very first three books. So they look like the original, you know, yeah. uh, that you know, Dalek, Zarbi, and the Crusade. And I got those just because they look pretty as shelf porn. They look pretty on the bookshelf. Um, but yeah, I read the I read the I read the Pinnacles pretty much religiously, and then when I got the other ones, I been buying doctor who weekly since issue one because we got that at the comic shop and i had my and so i was learning my history from those little like uh character profiles and actor pro you know when they in the weeklies very basic you know and then i think i was up to issue 50 and that had the first episode guide Right. That I had. So I started to – when I got the Target books, I figured out which ones were which. And I had the program guide, John, John Locke, uh, the first edition of that, which only went through Davison, I think. Maybe Colin. I don't remember. I've sold those in the past or given them to somebody else. But, you know, and I read and I read the Target books in order, the ones I had. So, you know, it was cool. And then when I got to ones that I kind of read that I had seen and read them, I kind of, you know. As like with this one, it, you know, it was like it was neat to read a different version of it because sometimes the Target books are very different and uh, are fleshed out and ca really capture the story and give you a little bit more. And some of them don't. I feel like I'm reading a 10th grade book report. This is the moment in the Target line when Terrence Dix finally caves in because he was doing books that were 135 pages then he drops down to 120 the next couple of books after this is the start of his 95 to 100 page era because after this he'll do invisible enemy and robots of death this may have been the book that broke his will to live and that was when target reached out to philip hinchcliffe and david witter to, to come back and do some books to help terrence out and give him a break and that's when ian martyr becomes a regular so this is the moment where I think I think Terrence was broken by the story, and after that, his books become a lot shorter for the next few years. Yeah, and that's and I I when I picked this up and started reading it, I was hoping for something more, and I was, you know, 
I actually, it's less than the show. There's a lot missed. There's a, all the flavor, all the good flavor of the show is gone. I mean, I, I get sick of Tom's ch scene chewing, but that could use a little Tom in it. It could, it really could use a bit of Tom in it. Yeah, I am going to be breaking that down in the, in the next half of the show, talking about why certain stuff is missing. But you have, you put Tom Baker and Liz Sladen on location. And on location was heavily improvised. So they just did a lot of crackling dialogue and repartee because they had magic together. Oh, yeah, that first episode is so good. Yeah, but Terrence was given the studio scripts, which doesn't have the improvisation, so it's very, very flat compared to the TV version. It's losing the magic of those two performers. I think Tom's invisible almost entirely in it. I think he is, the doctor goes, do this. The doctor, do this. Sarah, I think Sarah and Crawford, Crayford, a little bit. Sarah, he, there's... The, I can, I think Sarah comes out better in this book, but that's not saying a lot because no one comes out. I don't, I don't, I don't see any of the characters from the TV show at all in it, even knowing them. I cannot, it is so lacking in them when I read it. I don't even see them. I don't hear their voice in this book. Uh, and I don't see reading this book would ever in, make someone want to go watch the story. I'll give you the exception to that. When I was 11 years old, and I'd only been a fan of the show for about 90 days, I loved this book. I read it in my grandmother's one-bedroom apartment on Ocean Avenue. I acted parts of it out at age 11. When you're 11, you're not very critical as to what's a good story, what's a bad story. Yeah. Just the endorphin rush of getting a new Doctor Who book and a story that you haven't seen on PBS yet you're not breaking it down in that critical sense and you don't have the context. You don't have pyramids of Mars on one side and brain of Morbius on the other. Robert Holmes wrote in full the story on either side of Android invasion on TV. So you go from the best story to a really weak script to the best dialogue and comedy that Robert Holmes ever wrote. When you watch the show in sequence, Android invasion is a terrible irritant but reading it out of sequence at age 11, I happened to love the book. And when I watched the TV story for the first time on PBS a couple of months later, I taped it on VHS and I watched it over and over again. Particularly, I watched part three several times. And when I went back and pulled the two audio clips out of part three last night to play in the second half of this recording, my God, it's awful. Awful. <laughs> it's really bad. What gets what the trick is, like when me and Vic covered it, is we watched the first episode and we're like, oh. Wow. And then the second one starts. And I rem and it goes downhill. I I think I had the same experience when I read this when you know and I had seen it. But I, and I was a teenager. I mean, I was 18 or 19. And I could see this story because it's one, it's this fake village and this mystery and then the aliens and the thing. It's a good plot. And I can see if I if I'd been given this book maybe four or five years earlier, it would I would have a different reaction to it. And right now, it's very tainted by being being a fan for forty years, and really not liking this story as a television. It not it never being one that I ever really. It's I've never pulled Android uh, Invasion off the shelf to just watch random, and I don't think I ever will. You know, 
I love I'm a big Harry fan and Harry is just it's like why did you even hire it's I mean okay you gave him a paycheck nice of you but you don't let them do anything yeah, and it ended up being, it was his final on-screen appearance, and it was John Levine's final on-screen appearance. Yeah. It was definitely a downgrade for the two of them. They should have been more integrated into the plot. I mean, it's nice having their evil robot duplicates, but even the duplicates don't get a whole lot to do. Fortunately, Ian Martyr comes back, and he becomes a mainstay of the novel. So my next week's episode is an Ian Martyr novel. That'll be a very interesting to break down. And John Levine comes back for the convention circuit. And, of course, we all know what John Levine is like at conventions. So yeah, this was their last on-screen episode, but it was not – it was the beginning of their involvement with Doctor Who because they both got engaged with the Phantoms in different capacity and became very, very different people. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wish I uh, – um, Ian Martyr was still with us because I'd like to have seen more of his interviews and see him reminiscing later. I think he was 42 when he died and you and yeah. i are both a little bit past that now it is criminal that he died at age 42 and who knows what he could have done over the next 30 years because he would have been there for the new he would have pitched for the new adventures he would have pitched to write for the new series there was so much more he could have given us yeah yeah it's uh, and i like i mean i really I think Harry's an underappreciated companion at some points. It's like, you know, and Vic and me watch it. She goes, well, he's just this. He's just this basic guy. And it's like, no, I think you're missing the fact. He's he's a bit of a clod. Um, he's put in his place um, by the woman. He's not – he is the traditional English guy, but they make a point of Sarah correcting him and him learning. There is a – Harry is just a nice guy. Um. He's a bit of comic relief. He, the three of them are a great triple act. I mean, they are really good. They could have done much more with – he could have stuck around, and I don't think it would have taken anything away from Sarah Jane and the Doctor. Have you read Scratch, Scratch Man, which is the – No, James, I got it. I've never I haven't read it. I've thought about listening to it on tape. It's the James Goss novelization of a Tom Baker and Ian Martyr script. Tom Baker gets sole author credit on the front cover. I'm not sure if he actually wrote it. James Goss is inside as a co-writer. There's a sequence in there that was written by Ian Martyr originally where Harry, somebody is standing behind Harry trying to kill him, and Harry isn't aware. And Harry is so clumsy that every step he takes takes him off balance, and he keeps missing the axe blows coming at him from behind. It would have looked amazing on screen. It doesn't play quite so well on the printed page, but Ian Martyr had this idea for the character as this lovable klutz who manages to stay out of danger by being clumsy. He can step into the giant foam rubber clamshell that – how the fuck did you not see that? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, I That makes me giggle every time. Someone asked uh, – what was it on Twitter? Someone posted, give me a line uh, – show me your Doctor Who line, a Doctor Who fan, by one line of dialogue. And mine was, is Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. We have been rightfully beating up on Android Invasion. I'm going to give you the last word, and then we're going to pivot to our game playing. Okay. Uh, I think it's a terrible book. I think Terrence – I hope he bought something nice with the paycheck <laughs> <laughs> because it is dry. It is lifeless. It is dull, and it's disappointing because uh, Terrence is one of the great Doctor Who m 
minds in a lot of ways. I think he downplayed himself as just an editor. I think he, he there is a Terrence Sticks, there is a reason, you and me talked about it when we talked about the third Dalek. There is a consistency to him and Barry Letts' tenure that you had the same producer and the same script editor at the peak of doing their job, even if it's not an air that reaches some people. The third Doctor can be abrasive to some people, but the quality of the show is consistent. There are The bad stories are better because of Terrence Dick's fixing. I think that's why Hinchcliffe and Holmes works. There's a, the, the, the times where Hinch, uh, Holmes goes in and does a fix, I don't think he did one on this one. I cannot, I do not see anything in the television version other than maybe the first episode, because it's the only one that works, where Holmes fixed it, anything. Unless it was to fix, I think there is a lot more dialogue between the three baddies, and I don't find them that bad. I think uh, Milton Johns, who plays Crayford, yes. is great. He's great. He's just working with crap. His performance is fine. They brought him back two seasons later to be the human antagonist in Invasion of Time, and that is a wonderful performance. He's so, yeah. so hateful and weaselly. What else is he playing? He's also, isn't he runcible? No, that was Hugh Walters. You're thinking Enemy of the World. Oh, no, no, yeah. I just rewatched that, uh, just to rewatch Enemy of the World. I just decided I wanted to watch a second Doctor one, and I pulled that off the shelf, and it's a freaking masterpiece. And that's a that's a Barry Letts ensemble because Barry Letts directed both that and this. And Milton Milton Johns is in is in both. He plays a, a hard henchman and enemy of the world, and he plays the 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 dupe in this story. But yeah, that's Barry Letts' casting all the way across the board. Yeah. But I just think this book is just so. And I if that's what's happened is he's so burnt out. And he and I'm not I'm I'm not gonna I'm using this word and not as a derogatory, just as in a descriptive of someone who writes a lot. Terrence Dix was a bit of a hack. He never met a paycheck he didn't cash. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, I mean this as, an act, as someone who wanted to do theater. And if you are an artist where you are your own boss, you it's you, a little bit of the Gene Hackman disease is not a bad thing to have. You know, people ask Hackman, why do you take everything? He goes, because I don't know what my next job is. This could be my last job. So the next one could be my last job, so I take the job. After this, Terrence writes Hand of Fear, and that – I haven't reread it yet. That's coming up, but that's, that's a, that I believe is pretty good. But after Hand of Fear comes Invisible Enemy, Robots of Death, Image of the Fendal, Destiny of the Daleks. That's all of 1979. Those are short 100-page books, if that. So okay. Terrence is about to go through a period where he is just not emotionally present. And this, again, this is probably the book that broke him because he's given nothing good to work with. Now, he does take some really good digs at the story. He clearly doesn't like the script, and he's trying to tell us on the page that he doesn't like the story. And I'll break that down after the jump. But it definitely is missing the magic of the earlier Terrence Dix, and it is... Yeah, I was really, again, it, it, it is. I was... Because I really, when we did the last two, they were fun. I mean, Tenth Planet is, and I thought Curse of Peladon was better than Tenth Planet. But I also had the luxury of listening to David Chapman read it. And I don't know if this has been audiobooked. If it is, maybe one day I will buy it, depending on who's narrating it.
as of the Wikipedia page that I'm looking at, it has not been released yet. I know Keys of Marinus just came out, uh, but this this one has not come out. I thought they had probably gotten them all done by now. Looks like they have not. This is probably they're probably waiting for they're probably saving this for last for good reasons. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, and maybe they'll do a rewrite on it. I mean, because they did Warrior. What is it? Warriors Gate got a rewrite in the new targets they're putting out. Didn't one of them? I got Restore Warriors Gate on audio was restored to Stephen Gallagher's original manuscript, which was his okay, original script, and not, not the Christopher Bidmead rewrite. What about like Androids of Terra, the new Androids of Terra book? Is that a complete rewrite? That's a whole new adaptation, isn't it? David Fisher came back about 10 years ago for audio, and he wrote audio versions of that and Androids of Tara. So is that what was put out as the Target books last year? Yeah, so those, those, are, those are transcripts of the new novelizations that he wrote for audio only. Aye. The same way that Nigel Robinson wrote a new novelization of Unearthly Child, which will never see the light of day because of the collapse of audio go, but... Those were all new novelizations written for audio, and some of them we can get in paperback form now, but Unearthly Child we cannot because the company went under before it was released. When do you get to Unearthly Child in Target books? You have, you're not close, are you? Uh, I'm actually closer than you think because this is the last book of 1978. And that was 81, wasn't it? Yeah, but 79 is a very is a very small schedule. 81 has a lot fewer books than normal, so it's coming up in a few months. It had just come out uh, – it, it was relatively new when I was given the box of books because I read it. I read it first, um, you know, because I put them all in order like a nerd. <laughs> I had to read them in order. So. All right. So I'm going to give you a chance now to play 20 questions. Oh, shit. I have right. selected a Doctor Who story at random and – you will give me the title of the story using your 20 yes or no questions as a means oh, of narrowing God, I, it down. Do you know how much damage I did to my brain cells in the 80s? Come on, let's see. I'm, all right, Nobody let's go. has failed this game yet, and I doubt you're going to be the first. <laughs> oh, God. And this is courtesy of the randomizer.net. So I just ask you 20 questions, you give me yes or no, and I have to guess. Exactly. Right. Is, it a, is it a historical it is not a historical. Is it in color? Yes, it is in color. Question three. Is it set on a, uh, on a base? Is it a base under siege story? It is not a base under siege story. Question four. Is it a Dalek story? It is not a Dalek story. Question five. Is it new or old? Is it new who? It is not new who. Question six. So you've done pretty good. You've narrowed it down to the classic series. It is not based under siege. So that rules out a couple of seasons. It is not a Dalek story. Is it a uh, third Doctor story? It is not a third Doctor story. Question seven. Did John Nathan Turner produce it? John Nathan Turner was not the producer. Question eight. Okay, I've cut out half of the color you are. <laughs> um, oh, so it's it's got to be Tom. So if that, that counts as a question. Is that, is that a question? Is it a Tom Baker? No, that was just me thinking to myself. Okay. It's Sarah Jane in it. No, she is not. Question nine. 
Is it part of the key to time? Yes, it is part of the key to time. Now we're getting somewhere. Question 10. Oh, good. I got time. Now you are guaranteed to not fail. I could just, <laughs> just name, look and name them all. Yeah. <laughs> no, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Um, is Philip Maddock in it? No, Philip Maddock is not in it. 11. Are, are both the actresses that played Romana in it? No, both the actresses that played Romana were not in it. Okay. Okay. Hold on. I got to pull up the season. I can't remember all the names. Is it the Ribos operation? No, it is not the Ribos operation. How many questions I have left? Uh, I think we've, we've got through we got through twelve questions, and you have four stories left to, to go through. So you're going to oh, win. Okay. It's a matter of narrowing down which is the winner. Is there a stone circle in it? No, there is not a stone circle in it. Mother. Are there androids in it? Yes, there are androids. Not not the android invasion androids, but there are androids. Is it androids of uh, Terra? Yes, it is. Ding, ding, ding. That is my favorite key to time story. Absolutely my favorite key to time story. I love Rebo's operation. I think it's a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And it's perfectly cast, but I like the prisoners in the pit. No, no, I was just thinking, it, God, it could it be that horrible finale? Woof! The Armageddon Factor, which is also, that's coming up on this show. The book's got to be better, but because it's edited. Because the, the show is like, crap, man, there is three extra episodes wedged in here somewhere. It is, it is a short book, but it is still the disconnect between Anthony Reed, script editing one through five, and Douglas Adams rewriting episode six. So there is still that disconnect that Terrence Dix cannot fix. Yeah. There's a massive tone shift once Douglas Adams takes over at the end of the story. Well, I'm glad I got that was taken. I should have just asked John Nathan Turner because that really narrows it so much stuff. That gets rid of a decade, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, my friend, thank you very much. We have uh, gone through the entirety of Doctor Who in a little over an hour. I think we've expressed an opinion on every era of the show from 1963 <laughs> to 2022. Yeah. If you listen to one episode of Doctor Who literature, this is probably the one episode that name checks more Doctor Who stories than <laughs> any other. <laughs> well, I will I will cause a tangent. And you're coming back. I, I won't say which story, but you're going to be back on in a little less than two months, and we have another episode lined up for you to discuss a novelization format. Very much. You're going to need to that. text me then remind my soul. Uh, we'll pull it off the shelf now. I will tell you as soon as we stop the recording. Ross, thanks again for joining me. Have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you, my man. Doctor Who and the Android Invasion. Written by Terrence Dix. Televised as the Android Invasion. Teleplayed by Terry Nation televised in November and December 1975, published in November 1978. The back cover blurb to the Pinnacle edition. Doctor Who meets his clone. Doctor Who, that cocky, crazy, cosmic hobo, and his delightful companion Sarah land in the small English village of Devesham. The TARDIS has brought them safely home at last. Or has it? At first, the picturesque village seems deserted, but then they discover zombie-like inhabitants who won't answer their questions, and a mysterious soldier who marches over a cliff and reappears without a scratch. And then there are the weird coffin-like meteorites that open up and contain human-like creatures. Have the body snatchers returned?
What Doctor Who doesn't know is that the village is not English at all, nor is it on planet Earth. It's a replica on the polluted planet Osidon, the radiation-infested home of the Krals. The few surviving Krals must find a new home fast and are sending androids to Earth to take it over. Will Doctor Who be able to outsmart his own android clone in a face-to-face battle of wits and stop the android invasion of Earth? The following is heavily rewritten from a review that I submitted to Stacy Smith Question Mark's Doctor Who Ratings Guide in June 2021. Those were heady times for me. The pandemic in month 16 of lockdown was still in full swing with no signs of letting up, with COVID infection rates and death rates reaching blood-red intensity on the infection heat maps, primarily in the red states. I was still working from home, exactly a year away from setting foot in my office again. My Doctor Who TV pilgrimage was in its ninth month and on its fourth Doctor. I was smack bang in the middle of the Philip Hinchcliffe years. The genesis of this podcast was still five months away, and it would be almost another year before I got to the point in life that I was doing Zoom interviews with Philip himself, a portion of which you can hear elsewhere in this broadcast. At that point, I was focused on watching Doctor Who two episodes a night, and I wasn't reading every novelization alongside. The two novelizations I'd read directly before Android Invasion were Genesis of the Daleks and Pyramids of Mars, two of Doctor Who's top ten stories, excellent productions, amazing scripts. You could feel Terrence Dix's joy as he sat down with the camera scripts and his typewriter to turn those stories into books. And what books? But then we come to The Android Invasion, one of five Terrence novelizations in the year 1978. The feeling he must have experienced as he brought those camera scripts into the office was something a lot less than joy. That's certainly what watching Android Invasion was for me on TV. It was after six and a half straight seasons and over three full months of nothing but Barry Letts, Terrence, Hinchcliffe, and Robert Holmes stories, the first really bad Doctor Who I'd experienced since, oh, let's say, Seeds of Death and Space Pirates at the tail end of the Troughton years. And if you like those two stories, fair dues. As Ross and Jeff always say on Gallifrey's Most Wanted, every story is somebody's first, every story is somebody's favorite. The point is that those two stories, in my eyes, are well off the peak of seasons 7 through 13. Now, Android Invasion has a great first episode. Terry Nation always did great first episodes. It was everything after that which was a mess, and even director Barry Letts couldn't fix things. To the novelizations of Genesis and Pyramids, discussed on Doctor Who Literature, episodes 23 and 27, and even to the two Terrence books I've covered on this podcast immediately before this one, Time Warrior and Death to the Daleks, episodes 42 and 43 respectively, Terence lends his full magic, prologues, epilogues, lush descriptions, above and beyond what he would have read in the camera scripts, wicked sharp observations about the villains, about guest characters, about human nature. To Android Invasion, he adds, hardly anything. For this one story, he's just not feeling it. The nation scripts, and the Barry Letts TV direction, assuming he watched the video, not inspiring any keen insights. There's not even a chapter called Escape to Danger for crying out loud. To shout out to friend of the pod, Jim Sangster, 
who was on a bonus episode of this show last month and runs a blog of the same name. The first sentence, a soldier was marching through the forest, is a far cry from through the ruins of a city stalked the ruins of a man, or it was a place of ancient evil. Oh, the prose is excellent, as always, technically flawless, and keeps the pages turning. A joy to read out loud. But when the helmeted androids show up in Chapter 1, Terence, suspecting that these are truly weak bad guys, has Sarah think, what were four racing drivers doing in the middle of the wood? After the doctor rescues Sarah from a long fall with an outstretched arm and a pun, Terence writes from Sarah's POV, nothing seemed to quell the doctor's taste for terrible jokes. But Chapter 1 is mostly flat, hardly any observational humor, except for digs at the script's expense. A lot of TV dialogue is missing, though to be fair, Chapter 1's material is entirely on location, and this location shoot especially was full of the kind of ad-libbing that wouldn't appear in the scripts Terrence was given to adapt. Terrence includes only about 70% of the TV dialogue, maybe 70%, but he does add one line, Sarah commenting on the script, how the doctor's forgotten that he was being shot at two minutes earlier. Otherwise, this chapter is cursory and without joy, quite unlike any of the previous Terrence titles I mentioned above. And it's bizarre when in Chapter 3 the TARDIS dematerialization sound is described as groaning wheezing instead of the usual reverse order. Wait, that's not how that works. The Part 1 cliffhanger is an example of where Terrence just cannot make his usual chicken soup, not out of the chicken feathers of this script. It's where a part of the Space Research Center wall pulls back to reveal Stigrin's eyes, and he's an alien. Not a great cliffhanger to begin with. Terence writes, ending chapter 3, and representing the first cliffhanger, two deep-set alien eyes were staring unblinkingly at Sarah. They were the eyes of Stigrin, chief scientist of the crawls. Um, that's great. We still don't know what a crawl is, or what was alien about the eyes. Sutek's gift of death to all humanity, from the TV story directly preceding the android invasion, this is not... One advantage to the book over TV is that Terence reinstates some deleted scenes. The space tracking room and Grierson are reinstated for part one in a long three-page scene in chapter three, scripted but cut for timing on TV, and some other moments throughout the story. The name Space Defense Station on TV is renamed the Space Research Center for the book, possibly a vestige of the original draft. The gender and age of the android that Sarah finds in the woods is also different in the book. There, I found a discrepancy. Now my life's work is complete. Terence's descriptive powers are strained by this material. Grierson is said to look more like an engineer than a scientist. I admit, I'm at a loss. Then again, I was once told by a casual acquaintance that I looked short for my job title, and that was seven years ago, and I'm still at a loss for that one, too. I do like the description of Stigrin's voice as totally arrogant, quote, as if it was inconceivable that its orders should be disobeyed or even questioned. Chapter 4, the beginning of Part 2, is really where the TV story starts to fall apart. Again, Part 1 is good, a throwback, a rare post-60s episode devoted to the regulars slowly exploring a location and narrating everything they see. Nothing about Part 2 makes sense especially any scene in which Crayford switches opinions on whether the Doctor's arrival is a remarkable success or a deadly danger. 
in the same scene with no explanation. Terence can't do anything to salvage that, can't invent any witty explanations. All Terence does is bemoan the doctor and Sarah wandering up and down, quote, yet another corridor. Also, and this is a point to the TV story, not the novelization, either bloodhounds are native to the planet Osidon, or Crayford went so far as to not just have unit personnel and every local villager from miles around turn into androids, but he created bloodhound androids as well. The bloodhound android invasion of Earth? What were they going to do? Start a Manhattan detective agency of plucky kids and android dogs? The android bloodhound gang? Anyway, I'm getting a bit off script here. I usually rely on Terrence to add observational humor and bits of character insight and covering up of plot holes on almost every page. Android Invasion reads at a much lower grade level than the last two books. In Chapter 5, Sarah likens Stigrin's underground caverns to, quote, a home for trolls and goblins. That's good. When Marshal Chidaki, side note, when I was 11 and reading this for the first time in my grandmother's old apartment on Ocean Avenue, the one she lived in for 60 years, I assumed Marshall was an alien word and pronounced it Marshall. When Chidaki is introduced as, quote, only the crawl's military commander, Terence writes, quote, not for the first time, scientist and soldier were at loggerheads. Now, this is the last unit story of the 70s. Well, unless you count Seeds of Doom. The line is a fitting throwback to Terence's work on the Pertwee era, when the doctor and the brigadier were almost always at loggerheads. Quote, Wearily, Stigrin shook his massive head at the perpetual narrowness of the military mind. Otherwise, though, Chapter 4, like all the others, is dull and rote, with shockingly little comment on proceedings. I'm aware at this point, about halfway through my script, and I can see all of y'all out there checking your watches, looking for that fast-forward button on your phone to see if I'm ever going to come back to my point. I'm harshing on this story, but I'm not trying to harsh on Terrence. While there's much less of Terrence's voice here than in all of his previous works, he still can't help but drop in a strong character insight every now and then. Top of chapter 6. The doctor, quote, had been wandering around the bar examining anything and everything, with a curiosity that was somehow both casual and intense at the same time. I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? That is the fourth doctor. Casual and intense at the same time. Curiosity. Wandering. Examining. That's all Tom Baker's nonverbal gestures and intensity. Not even the scripted material. The way he inhabits a room, looks for novel ways to walk through doors. There's also a parenthetical in mid-chapter, page 57, if like me you're on the Pinnacle edition, where Terence gives the entire history of the crawl race in a single paragraph, inside parentheses, or brackets, depending on your country of origin, quote, The crawls are a short-tempered race, and spend almost as much time fighting each other as in planning the conquest of other races. This ferocious temperament was the cause of the many savage atomic wars which had devastated their planet and reduced the crawl race to a mere handful, totally dependent on the androids. It was very confident of the Doctor to program the TARDIS to leave for the real Earth without him, secure in the knowledge that he'd find a way to get there, even before he knew he was on Osidon, and that Osidon was planning to invade Earth. No? No. 
The only other real difference between Chapter 6 and the TV material is that two scenes are flip-flopped, and the Doctor recognizes that Sarah is an android because she's wearing her jacket that she gave him earlier, rather than the scarf. Not exactly riveting revelations. The first scene between Stigrin and Shadaki in Chapter 7, now Terry Nation, as effective a writer as he can be, does not do a double act as well as Robert Holmes, or maybe a double act is harder with two performers in ill-fitting latex masks. Anyway, the scene is altered a bit, with some dialogue being swapped between the two crawls to give Chidaki more of a backbone, more of an edge of steel, which, frankly, is better than on TV. In the same chapter, the Doctor is much ruder to Stigrin, getting off pretty weak insults like ugliest and pigface. In a later scene in the same chapter, the Doctor describes Stigrin to Crayford as the warty chap with the big nose, which sounds almost like what Peppermint Patty calls Snoopy in the comic strips. Not sure if those were Terry Nation lines that got cut in rehearsal, or if Terrence had just given up trying to hide his distaste for the story at this point, but it plays very differently in the book than it did on television. Let's give a listen. Oh, hello. Resistance is inadvisable. Look here. We haven't been introduced, have we? This is no time for niceties. In exactly three minutes, our simulated Earth village will evaporate, and you with it. You're really enjoying this, aren't you? Don't go. Stay, just for a few minutes, then we can all go together. Chapter 8 retains an error from the original script the Doctor reminding Sarah, in the Part 3 material, of high radiation levels that were not mentioned in Part 1 either as broadcast or in the corresponding novelization chapters. That would have been an important thing to have mentioned on TV. Terrence does, however, come up with an amusing justification for Crayford spilling his guts to the Doctor and Sarah in this chapter. Quote, He felt a strange need to talk to the two prisoners, to explain things, to justify himself. I assume that Terence is not using the word strange in a flattering sense. Followed up by, quote, Crayford felt it was important to convince the doctor that he was wrong. For some reason, indeed. Dialogue reassigned to Sarah for TV about the people of Earth having one or two skills of their own revert back to the doctor in the book. The Hinchcliffe-era production team was very good about reassigning scripted lines to Sarah to bolster her character. And one slight drawback of the novelizations of these stories is that they don't reflect rehearsal changes like that. Terence does add a line for Stigrin in this chapter about the crawls not being immune to the virus. I suspect Terence invented that line to set up Stigrin's eventual grisly, liquidy fate. Many of the best bits of Tom Baker, Liz Sladen byplay are not in the book, or at least are streamlined down. Let's listen to the TV version. I'm over here! 
Listen, this place is going to be blown sky high. Why don't I sit there? Come on! I'm not just sitting here, I'm tied up. Knife in my right hand pocket. It won't cut. It's as strong as steel. It's an artificial ivy. Try the sonic screwdriver. Set it to theta omega. Yes, I probably left in more of the TV audio than I should have, but I do that for two reasons. Number one, groovy, isn't it? Secondly, plot-wise, in-universe-wise, what is the reason for blowing up the village on a planet that's about to be abandoned anyway? Why not just leave it? Anyway, in addition to a diluted version of the pretty crackling dialogue between the Doctor and Sarah on TV, and that is a compliment, Grierson in Chapter 9 finally appears in the main story after his Chapter 3 scene was cut for TV. But here he's demoted from scientist in the earlier chapter to technician now. We also lose the little look exchanged between Benton and Harry when Faraday falsely proclaims that Crayford has been further into space than any other human being, although Barry Letts cuts away from that look too fast, if you ask me. I can swear Terence is engaging in wishful thinking, as he imagines Crayford's violent demise in Chapter 10, two chapters ahead of schedule. As the XK-5 is coming into land, Terence dreamily imagines a single mistake, and the returning astronaut will be dashed to pieces against the planet he had waited so long to reach. Now, the other line, a failure in the heat shielding, and the ship could flare into nothingness like a meteor, is much less palatable after what happened to the space shuttle Columbia, but this was written 25 years before that disaster. Chapter 10 is also missing the rather effective TV location scene, where Sarah has a disturbing run-in with both hers and the Doctor's android clones. Now that scene has little payoff on TV, but it is effective in isolation, and I kept checking back in the book to see if I'd overlooked it by accident. Terence does pay a lament to Nicholas Courtney, not being available during season 13, necessitating the use of Colonel Faraday as a stand-in for this story only. Quote, The doctor wished desperately that Lethbridge Stewart hadn't chosen this moment to go rushing off to Geneva. Most of the time the brigadier was under his feet, and the one time he needed him the wretched fellow wasn't there. The end of the android invasion on TV is a mess due to glaring plot holes, and a chaotic studio production that saw at least one important expository scene never filmed. Barry Letts never directed again after this story. Uh, 
Now, Terence really can't fix that for the novelization, but instead does something equally wonderful, which is just lean into how bad the script was. Terence adds half a page, literally, of Sarah experiencing self-doubt about having to climb up Crayford's rocket after she promised she'd rescue Harry, although this sadly approaches a negative stereotype about women. Now, this material does help fill the page count since little else of interest is going on. Terence openly mocks, via the Doctor's internal thoughts, the clunky dialogue. After the android Doctor spills Stigrin's plans to Crayford, quote, How strange, thought the Doctor, that an android should take such pride in the ruthlessness of its creator. Indeed, there's a lot of strange things about the script that Terence is adapting. Now, Terence does fix the plot hole about how the android Doctor Duplicate is able to operate because the Doctor app activates an android jamming radio wave, try saying that five times fast, with two extra lines of dialogue not recorded for TV. The android invasion on TV famously doesn't conclude, but rather just stops, with three or four plot strands still left to resolve. Instead of resolving anything, there's one light-hearted location scene of the Doctor bantering with Sarah as they approach the TARDIS. Terence cheerfully jettisons that scene. Instead, he wraps up the book with one of the great shade-throwing paragraphs of all time, including a final sentence that's probably the most pointed insult in any Doctor Who novelization. There was still much to be done. The immobilized androids would have to be collected and dismantled before the low-level scanner beam could be switched off. But soon, life in the Space Research Center and in Deepsham Village would return to normal. Marshal Chidaki would wait in vain for Stigrin's signal to bring the invasion fleet of the Krals to an unsuspecting Earth. With Stigrin dead, his master plan would come to nothing. The android invasion was over. Let's say that again, but slower. The android invasion was over. As in, thank goodness, the android invasion is over. Next time, on Doctor Who Literature, we come to the end of 1978. On TV, it's already the back half of season 16, and we're in the middle of the androids of Tara, even though the novelizations haven't yet published anything more recent than Horror of Fang Rock. The Target books, meanwhile, slip back and finally release the last novelization of a season 12 story. Not my favorite one, but Ian Martyr is back for a second novelization, and boy, what a book he gives us. It's the first adaptation of a two-part serial. It means that Martyr has a lot of room to take dramatic license. And dramatic license he shall take. We're off to Dartmoor to experiment with the remnants of a pretty run-of-the-mill TV adventure by adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. I'll be back with a returning guest to break down Doctor Who and the Sontaran Experiment. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Ross Aitken. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels. And under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage, 
and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's drwholiterature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Thank you.